Good morning. I know it's true. It's all because of you. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. And from that, John, Paul, George and Ringo, with the help of AI, got the band back together for one final song. Liveline, Joe got the first play. Now and then was a winner. David Brophy is on the line, the conductor. What did you think of the single? There's something very poignant, and also to me, there's something a bit like I feel like in some ways I'm eavesdropping on a on a yeah. on a love moment between John and Yoko. I kind of feel it's a love song for her. You can kind of get the impression that John is just doodling at the piano and just singing this almost to himself. And that actually creates something there's something very poignant about it listening to it there. This is from Dave Fanning. It is a Beatles song. Lovely stuff. Simon Marr of Eight Radios. I have to say I really like it. I think Dave was right when he said that it sounds like a Beatles song. You get the feeling that if the Beatles were still around, had kept yeah. on recording and stayed together as a band, that's the sort of sound they were heading towards. It just works. It works very well. And then the memories from brief encounters to the Dublin gig at the Adelphi back in 63. Quiet! For heaven's sake. Listen, what are you doing down here? Like you a... need to see the Beatles, of course! I know, I know you are, but, but what, what particular... The Beatles, oh, they're great. Their hairstyle, their coats, their jackets, their leather jackets are fabulous! Yes. Terrific, the sensation! Sensation! Uh, Terry Coleman-Black, you were there 60 years ago. Yeah, I was a 14-year-old schoolgirl. I can still remember it. They had curtains that went back. Okay. So, like, the re- and okay. there they were. Like, I'd scream, yeah, I did, of course, I screamed. I didn't care, I just wanted to see them. Eamon, you met the Beatles when? I met the Beatles, Joe, in 1963. They travelled from Dublin to Belfast and they called to... Valley Miscanlan Hotel. They came at lunchtime. They wore the same jackets that they wore, uh, you know, at, at other times. They were the collar around collars. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, each one of them had a cine camera in his hand. They continued to film each other and mess around. And even when they were eating their lunch, John wanted uh, egg and chips, he said. 
You know, yeah, I remember yes. taking the order from him. Yeah, caused a bit of hassle in the ah. kitchen because you didn't do chips in the middle of the day in those days. Okay. You know, okay. Evening, yeah. Tom, good afternoon. You're a lighting designer. Hey, uh, Joe. Yeah, listen, I worked for Eric Clapton in the 80s and George is a good pal of his. Uh, Eric's son died. Wow. Uh, we were at the funeral, which was awful. Very sad. Later on that day, a few of us were standing around in Eric's back garden and George came up to us and said, that bench there, that's where we wrote, here comes the sun. Tommy Nolan, Tommy, the Adelphi. Well, I was there that night, Joe, because I'd done the lighting for them. they done two shows, half six and nine o'clock. So in between, I thought I'd disappear off the stage for a few minutes. Went into the toilet. I had a crossword book with me. Okay. So I was sitting down, crossword doing book. a few okay. crosswords. Yes, yes. Yeah, and the uh, next thing's a bang on the door. And I said, I'll be out in a minute. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Another bang on the door. I'd be out in a minute, I told you. I didn't know who it was. So I finished up what I was doing and <laughs> went to open the door. Who's standing there? Only John Lennon. Right. You know? Yeah. And I said, what's your problem? <laughs> he said, do you know who I am? I said, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, there's no need to be like that. Yeah. Uh, when he says, I can get you sacked for oh, the way you're talking Lord. to me. Oh, good I said, if you want, you can get me sacked, but there won't be any show because I'm doing the lighting. Good man, you know? Tommy. So, so, so then we had a bit of a laugh. It was brilliant. Oh, it was a sick. great night. From Liveline and at nine o'clock. And it feels like an ending for the Beatles fans. We used to know a Beatles fan here, but um, so sad. We all partied. Uh, so there's an ending there as well. I do think. Moving on. With Brendan, yes, he was the governor of California and Mr. Universe, but to us, he'll always be the Terminator. Like motivating people, don't you? You mentioned kind of casually in the book that if you're in the gym and you see a guy maybe who needs a bit of help, you come over and 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 give him a hand. I love sharing. It all comes from that, you know. I I, I hate doing anything by myself. I love doing it with people, and so I'm a people's person. I screw the privacy. I can have that at home. When I go out, I go out. And so when I go to the gym and I see someone training next to me and he doesn't do full reps, I will say to that person, I said, you know, I see you doing your reps here on the pull down on the lat machine. Have you ever thought about maybe pulling it all the way down to your neck, the bar? And they would say, yeah, I'm not doing it. And I said, well, you're almost there. I said, but you can go and go, you know, really touch with the bar of your neck. And I think it would be much more effective in your latissimus muscles. And I think with every exercise, you should actually do full reps. Because if you do in the gym full reps, then in your life, everything that you approach will be done in full reps. And so the same is with diet and the same is with everything. I always had the ability to motivate people. I think because I'm passionate about helping people. It must be amazing for those people. Like, it's just a minute out of your day, but imagine you're sitting in the gym and Arnold Schwarzenegger comes along and and, and, uh, and gives you some help. Amazing. Or you could soil yourself. It could be kind of scary. But Arnie, in fairness, seems like a lovely man. He has written a self-help book called Be Useful, and he is nothing if not determined. In bodybuilding, I've worked out five hours a day. So if I want to go into acting now, I have to also work five hours a day. So I took acting lessons. I took speech lessons. I took English lessons, accent removal lessons, and all this kind of stuff. I was sitting there, you know, because the Germans always say three, 3,333. <laughs> and so the, the, my, act, my, my, my speech coach was telling me, 
No, Arnold is a TH. It's not an S. You have to say 3,333. You, you just about got it there. You just about yes. got it. Yeah. <laughs> I ran around all day long with this kind of sayings. A fine wine grows on a vine. Or the zinc is made out of zinc. And things like that. <laughs> Stuff that we in, 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 in German had difficulty with. I had to just practice over and over. Yeah. And it was just one of the things. Then there was stunt lessons and there was acting lessons. There was all of this stuff. Hours and hours I spent every day working and working and working on improving and really being able to then eventually handle a leading role. Arnie, a very charming man. This week, the death toll in Gaza reached more than 9,000, many of whom were children. And those foreign passport holders who could flee Gaza did so. But for those who stayed, the bombs continued to fall. Fran McNulty reported from Tel Aviv. On Wednesday, he spoke to Mary Regan on Morning Ireland in the aftermath of an Israeli strike on the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. Well, this morning, Mary, the Israeli Defence Forces are saying that they saw several Hamas operatives in a multi-storey building in Jabalia yesterday near a hospital, uh, near a medical centre and a school, and that resulted in this strike. That's what they're saying this morning. Uh, The reality is that uh, Jabalia is a Hamas stronghold. Uh, There is the likelihood that it is a a location from which operations are run and that's what explains this strike because when you see the pictures of the crater it goes very deep into the ground uh, the IDF did say yesterday it was about striking uh, some of the underground network and they were claiming that they had killed uh, the Hamas com- uh, commander Ibrahim Biari and what we know from it is that as well as these 50 confirmed deaths and there are suggestions uh, that it could be more than that the injuries, Mary, which were suffered uh, by some people there. Um, when we're putting together television news reports, we have to look through all of the footage. And I can tell you there were some scenes there which you could only describe as unspeakable. The level of injuries mm. that young children had in particular, burns and very bad injuries as a result of what happened. It was a really horrific bomb. And when it happened, in fact, word started to emerge immediately. It was so large by comparison to all of the other bombardment Jabalia had had over the previous 48 hours. And with Colm Mungon on drive time, Isildine Abu Leish, a Palestinian doctor who was born and raised in the Jabalia refugee camp. There is no electricity, no water, cut of water, cut of medications, cut of food and life in the Gaza Strip and the Jabalia camp. It's hopeless, lifeless, jobless, helpless. And in 2009, his own family was killed. A tragedy befell your family. You had been working as a doctor in Israel. You had, you had gone uh, back to live in Gaza. And then in 2009, two years after the Hamas takeover of the Gaza Strip, Tragedy befell your family. Two Israeli tank shells hit your home. Can you tell the listeners what happened to you, what happened to your family on that day in 2009? 16th of January 2009, it was a Friday. We were sitting with my children under the shilling, under the bombing. And it's a nightmare as it's happening these days. We were waiting in line as the Palestinians now, they are waiting in line. Who will be next? Now the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, they are moving coffins, they are moving graves, even it's sad, it's shame in the, you know, these days where Palestinians, there is shortage of coffins. At that moment, who will be killed from my children? 
So I started to divide them three on this wall, three here, three there, in case any shell, not all of them to be killed. And I say to myself, if I am gone with them because they lost their mother who passed away of acute leukemia 16th of September 2008. So then 16th of January, quarter to 5 p.m. I didn't believe it. It's my house. It's my home. When I don't want anyone on earth to see what did I see. Where is Bisan? Where is Mayar? Where is Aya? Where is Noor? They became bars. Mayar was decapitated, drowning in their blood. I can't recognize them. I lost faith as this time I lost faith in the humanity. But I directed my faith to God to give me the strength, the support, the wisdom to manage it. And I am proud that I am a medical doctor. I managed emergency situations. So I started to think, what can I do to save those who are wounded, because the priority in life is for the living. Dr. Abu Leish became a peace activist and has been nominated for the Nobel Prize five times. Column put this to him. What, in your opinion, would provide an excuse to stop this? Do you think talks over hostages? Do you think longer humanitarian pauses? What is it that would stop this conflict and allow the space for talks about peace to happen? The first and the priority I use in my medical and profession, number one, stop the bloodshed and this urgent, immediate ceasefire. This is the first priority. And to allow the emotions to go down and to calm the people now, the emotions are high, outrageous, angry, and they call for retaliation. So the first thing to give the time to the people to reflect on what happened and to understand it, immediate ceasefire, then followed by immediate negotiations to release the hostages and exchange them today, not tomorrow. And then to take, not to start talks, to start taking serious, sincere, honest, authentic, just action from the international community to equalize between the Palestinians and the Israelis and to deal with the root causes of the problem which is the occupation to get rid of this occupation where Palestinians can be free, equal, side by side to the Israelis and their safety, their security, their freedom is equal and dependent and linked to the Palestinian safety, freedom and equality. Dr. Ezeldine Abulaish on Drive Time. Back in a bit. October over with and another record. The month of October was the wettest on record at weather stations in Cork, while nine Met Erin stations around the country surpassed their long-term autumn rainfall average, with another month still to go. According to the Met Erin October Climate Statement, which was published this morning... And at the start of the week in certain counties, flooding and the threat of Storm Ciarán. On Tuesday's News at 1, Newry and Louth particularly badly affected. Frankie McGorry owns Lumper's Bar in Ravensdale in Cooley. He spoke to Laura Whelan. It was coming down the road like a river, just like a river from the mountain. And um, just was the one road for the water to go. Like. Well, outside now it's starting to come down. It's all silt and muck, dirt. Debris, um, bit of sewage. Inside, it's just you know something that's not as bad, but it's lost silt, water marks. It was about eight inches inside. It's like sludge. It's all over the place. Just, all just takes everything with it. 
And while Ciarán swerved past Ireland at the last minute, as the earth continues to heat up, we get more storms, more rainfall, with entire communities facing flooding. But for Elaine McGough, Head of Advocacy with Antashka, we need to reconsider our entire relationship with the land and return to a way of thinking that recognises the need for our native wetlands. We know climate change is going to bring and is bringing heavier, more frequent rainstorms. So we're probably going to see this more often than we have been. How prepared are we and what can we do uh, to be more ready for these events? We need to acknowledge that the way we're using land is exacerbating this problem. We can change the the rainfall patterns, but we can change how we deal with them. So we're looking at a situation in Ireland, a wet country, where we've drained 90% of our wetlands, more than any other country on earth. And we have the OPW who are dredging and deepening and straightening our rivers since the 40s. And what that does is it drains the adjacent agricultural land. It renders it more productive, which is good for farmers, but it comes at a cost. So basically what we're doing is we're moving the flood water downstream at a faster rate. So we put drains in place through wet and peaty land, which lead to streams and rivers, and they themselves are deepened and straightened. So water is moving off the land even faster than ever. But this, as I said, is just moving the flood downstream. Like we have put our river systems in straitjackets, and they're going to inevitably break out of these, which is what we're seeing at the moment. Um, What we need is to look at this holistically and figure out how we keep water on the land. And that's through wetlands and bogs and ponds and floodplains. Like there's very much a place for flood defence work, but we can't build our way out of this. The scale of the challenge is greater than anything we've faced to date. And she talked about what this might involve, what she described as natural flood management. So what that would mean was reconnecting the rivers to the floodplains where possible, where we haven't built on the floodplains, looking to see where the river should naturally flood, putting in what are called leaky dams, so just slows the the water down, Um, putting uh, putting our boglands back in place, putting ponds and flood attenuation ponds on land, basically basically just giving the water somewhere to sit, to slow it down, so it doesn't all just move at the same speed off the land into our river system. But if we go back... Sorry, Elaine, to to cut across you, but if we go back to what you said about why this was done since the 1940s, it was to improve farmland. So if you reverse that and you allow that land to be flooded, the farmers won't be happy. Absolutely, you're right. Um, The problem is land use, both urban and rural, but a huge part of the solution would be looking at the upstream catchment, which in most cases is farmland. Um, There have been several projects in the UK where farmers have worked with the government and they've been rewarded to put natural flood retention measures in place to great success. But this would have to come, it would have to happen on a voluntary basis. And farmers would have to be rewarded for this. And while this kind of model is being explored because it's the natural world, well, we might have to embrace uncertainty. There's no one size fits all, which is, I think, why we haven't kind of embraced natural flood management in Ireland, because it's not certain. And engineers like certainty. We live in an uncertain world now, so we have to embrace that uncertainty and take it um, catchment by catchment and see what we can do and where. But it's not going to be as certain as building a dam or building building a wall. So we just have to accept that, I think. Meanwhile, all this week, Nature Nights in appreciation of the earth and its creatures. And in Custodians of Ireland, Michelle Brown met marine biologist Jack O'Donovan Traw and Vincent Highland, a wildlife filmmaker and author. And they are on a mission to protect our native kelp forests, those brown seaweedy bits. The 
So in the kelp forest, one of the most amazing things about a kelp forest, you know when you walk through a forest on land and you have the upper canopy, you have maybe ferns and ivy growing along the trunk and then you have everything on the bottom, the mushrooms and the bluebells and everything else. Kelp forests are very, very similar except you've got this extra dimension of the liquid that's flowing through everything and that carries with it so much nutrients and things that aggregate in the canopy of the kelp forest so in the fronds which is like basically the leafy part of the kelp everything that gathers in there and it's falling down and the shrimp and all of these animals at the bottom are feeding on that so this forest is really alive you know um, and and i can understand why jack is so just totally in awe uh, with kelp and the whole place is just full of life. You've got crabs walking along, spider crabs, you've got uh, velvet swimming crabs, you've all wrasse species. Uh, you've got, sometimes you, you, you know, you'll actually see shoals of fish coming in and around. So constantly, this constant movement, you've got snails, you know, grazing up along the, uh, uh, the stipes of the kelp. There's a whole myriad of things that go on and all you have to do is just sit down and look and wait and listen sometimes if you have a if you have some hearing gear on yeah exactly and that's that's the thing i think people don't realize as well and one of my favorite species called the lesser spotted cat shark which is about a, a meter long quite slender and it's a golden colored with this almost leopard print and often you'll just see them lazing about in the kelp forest like lying on the bottom and you'll get you know you can often get quite close and if you're calm and if you sit at the bottom they'll just sit there and look at you but if you ever see one swimming across the top of the kelp forest and if it's moving it's just absolutely mesmerising. And with the right microphone lowered right down into the sea, you might just hear this. Oh yeah, I can hear snapping shrimp. Already? Here, have a listen. Jeez, they're just literally snapping yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really loud. And as well, if you didn't know what you were listening for, you might think it's rocks rolling around or something, but the sound of snapping shrimp, wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Do you want to hear it? Do you put it on here? Yeah, yeah try, try it on that. Amazing is right. From Nature Nights. With Miriam on Sunday, John Clark, Marion Fnucan's husband and partner for over 40 years. When I was walking across here today into the radio centre from where I work in television, I passed Marion's sculpture, which is quite beautiful. Yeah. How are you, as a widower, how, how lonely are you post Marion and how are you doing in her absence? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I really don't, you know. If you live with someone for 40 years and share nearly everything, you know, uh, and suddenly it stops, you know, mm. uh, you're cast adrift. I wouldn't be sitting here if she was still alive. I can tell you that. Uh, secondly, I can tell you I wouldn't have written a book if she was still alive. So it just changed my whole life from the most simple things in the world to the most complex. I sat down about six months after she died and I said, I've got to do something that will occupy me until I die. I wasn't aware of cancer at that point. So I decided we'd a swamp out in the land I live on that I would build a Zen Buddhist garden based on a 16th century Japanese model. And everybody said, oh, you're building the garden for Marion. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm building it because of Marion. 
He's written a book, Fanukin and Me, My Life with Marion. But why write this book, particularly about a woman for whom privacy was so important? If she was alive, I would never have written the book. She had this thing for secrecy. You mean, I know I've known you or mm. watched you or listened to you for a good few years mm. now. I don't know you from a hole in the wall, <laughs> you know. I would have thought the public were very much the same. With Marion, she went out of her way to protect her family, but actually it was to protect her uh, of whatever life she lived. And he spoke of their shared grief at the death of their daughter Sinead at the age of nine from leukaemia. Did you both deal with it differently, John? The book itself, you kind of imply that you did that. Marion simply could not talk about it. No, never recovered. And even to me, she had difficulty about it. We're all layered as people. We've depths and they go down, down, down. And lot of them, we don't know what they are or where they go or anything like that. And Sinead's death was somewhere deep in Marion. Uh, and I never know whether she went there or not. She certainly never talked about it, you know. She just cried. 20 years later, she just cried. And that about says it all. Yeah. And he spoke about how his own grief has changed. What about yourself? How do you deal with something like that? I mean... Well, I had this thing that I... Her grave is about 100 yards from the house. And... Uh, and I drive by it every day. And so I can always shout, hello, Sinead, how are you today? And what's happening? And I talk about whatever I'm doing. And I don't know when it started or how it started, but that's what I used to do. And then Marion is very beside her, and uh, I just don't talk. Somehow, I'm closed out. I can't answer that. I would love to, but I, I just don't know the answer. Is it because they're back together or something? There, I have explored it endlessly. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't I talk to the two people I love? You know, they're beside me. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. There could be a bit of that too. Maybe I'm annoyed because they left. The rules are I was supposed to die first, you know. It didn't work out that way, you know. I just don't know. But from what was a pleasure, uh, talking to my daughter, stupid stuff, has now become some sort of a burden. This bit I don't understand either. And he talked to Miriam about his own alcoholism. He's sober now some 30 years. But on the night of his wife's funeral, he knew he needed an AA meeting. I went to AA that evening. Of Marion's funeral? Yeah. I, um, I couldn't think of anything else to do, you know. A few of them were drinking a bit, uh, which is fair enough. And uh, there's a lot of drink around the house. And uh, we'd only be talking about Marion. And I thought, you know, you're in dangerous territory here. And I went down and I shared it in the AA rooms. 
and at the root of his alcoholism, he believed, a quest for meaning, something he could trace back to himself as a young man at the age of 15. I decided I was going to be an existentialist. Now, I wasn't fully sure what an existentialist was. I think roughly described nowadays as a dropout. But I was an existentialist. I was always searching for some purpose in my life. I could see absolutely no purpose, you know. I mean, if I dropped dead tomorrow or yesterday, the world doesn't stop spinning around and nothing seems to change much, you know, except me. Uh, so what was the point of all this? And I've never found an answer. I still ask the question, you know. And there are certain satisfactions in doing good and being part of humanity that tries to do something good and living as reasonable a life as you can after that. But I still don't see much purpose in my life. Except for love and your children and your grandchildren. You write about how great you are yeah, as a grandfather. Those, those are nice things, but you know. <laughs> From Sunday with Miriam. On the Misha sessions on Bank Holiday Monday, the beautiful voice of Lisa O'Neill. And for her, there is a rhythm and a thrum in the turning of the earth. I think nature is musical. Um, everything that is alive is musical. Uh, to hear a tin can blowing down the street, I can hear the music in that. I can hear the, the music in the bird song, of course. Um, but anything that the wind does, and sometimes... If you have a certain type of thinking, you can even see music. So I see a feather blown in the wind, and that is that is music visually to me. Um, there's this great hum that's going on all the time. And um, the world is so noisy, we don't always hear it, but I think everything, everything is humming all the time. And during the lockdown, we heard it, it got turned up a little bit more, but that natural drone um, that the earth is is vibrating constantly below us, uh, is within us, and uh, it gets drowned out a little bit sometimes with the noise of a city. And I, I try to retrieve that and go into the imagination of, of that in, in this song. The wind was held you in behind the springtime. Float all note new among my mind You're holding out The note just moves the movement Let go the note and so move everything I can't come to quantify the feeling I was walking home half in the dream The things that I was thinking I was singing The wind whistled you in behind the spring The star and the rings around the star before me And spun and swooped and sank 
can rock beneath me And mirror though what I've carried since I met me And it shot me back into the ground below me So beautiful Back in a bit Welcome back no sooner is the Halloween past, well, you know what's coming. And with it, that end of year feeling. Um, the Collins Dictionary, word of the year, they're out early, two months left. But apparently, lexicographers at Collins Dictionary have put AI at the top of their list after looking at all the media sources, including social media content, because the term has accelerated at such a fast pace in the year 2023. So the abbreviation AI. Oh, it is everywhere. But later in the week, this... Uh, someone says you need to get your persona patented before an AI version takes your job on the radio, says Bob. Thank you very much. Well, there's no point in patenting it because I think we're just going to be all owned by Elon Musk. In fact, one of the headlines out of that, by the way, is that we won't have to work again. So I won't even have to be here. That's the good news. You'll just have a nice robot talking to you, although they won't sound like that because they're, they sound way more convincing. How do you know? Bob, that I'm not already just an AI-generated um, nonsense um, uh, purveyor. How about that? Now, uh, I'll tell you why. Because you're doing items on stone lifting. Find me the algorithm that would throw up that one. Brace yourself. Bend your knees. Here's David Kyogen, a.k.a. Indiana Stones. They go all the way back. You know, mm. you're talking, some of these are pre-Christian events, you know, right. that there used to be trials of strength for men and women. On special days, like I'm saying, they're, they're days like Lunasa, you know, and it's a place called uh, Terminal McGurk up in County Tyrone. And this, there, this ancient festival that the men and women used to go up to the top of this hill, light fires in this little amphitheatre of a hill they had up there. It was absolutely beautiful. And there was a stone called the Scalp Stone. And if you could lift that stone off the ground, you got huge social status, you know, you got huge respect. Yeah. And we went up and we lifted that there out about four months ago in County Tyrone. And you said you were the first man in living memory to do it, you know. You're carrying on a tradition that was almost dead. I mean, it was almost gone, but you're bringing it back and it's just such an honour to do it, you know. How, how soft we've become that our validation is a couple of likes of a post online where people <laughs> used to physically lift stones, massive stones. That's it. Uh, so That's the, it. You know, the, these rites of passage were wonderful. Yeah, the great tradition. So they were, they were used, they lifted stones at funerals, weddings? That's right. I mean, they did funeral games. I mean, like running, leaping, horse racing, but it also had stone lifting at these events, you know, so. Wow. And at some places you had the man's lifting stone and you had the woman's lifting stone. So the man would lift, say, I found one down in County Clare, like the, man, the man's stone clock the flower was 162 kilos and clock the man was, um, the, the female's lifting stone was 112. And whoever lifted that the highest on the day got great respect, you know, again, great social status. Great to reaching back to these people again. It's, 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 it's just wonderful to do it. And if you are tempted, something for the weekend, one of the biggest ones can be found in Derry. I was talking about this massive lifting stone, this column stone that the chieftains used to be coronated. The ancient chieftains of the year used to be coronated on the top of a hill at this stone. And the stone was meant to be thrown by, by Fiona Cool. So because Fiona touched it, it was like a magical stone. So that the chieftains used to be coronated. All the people from the village would come up, up to the top of the hill and he'd be coronated up there. And it was a great feat of strength to be able to lift that stone off the ground. So I went, we went up and we picked up off the ground. <laughs> this thing is absolutely massive. Yeah. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe the size of it when I saw it. You know, it was like, 
in the name of God, could a man pick that up? But I don't know why someone the strength of Fiona or something, something can't be from somewhere because I got that thing off the ground and I'm saying at least 250, between 250 to 300 kilos. You know, it's an incredible stone. And it's just getting it off the ground for a couple of seconds. Is, is that the idea? For, for some of them, exactly. And this one was so massive. poetic way of saying it. They call it the getting the guayfu or getting the wind under it. I think oh, that's just yes. a lovely way of saying it. Isn't okay. that beautiful? That is, and that's a really nice it, way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. So those, some of them is just to get the guayfu and some of them is to pick them up in the chest, depending on the area you go to. But I'm at the funny 32 now, around scattered all around Ireland. It's like I've just pulled on the thread of this all over and it's just starting to unravel. It's absolutely brilliant. And staying with tough Monica Lockman, Ireland's only prima ballerina. At the age of just 14, she went to study ballet in Russia. She stayed for 14 years. She loved it. But she learned some hard lessons. Age 16, she was dancing with a Russian state company. I dreamt in Russian. Everything I did was Russian. I was more Russian than I was Irish. Mm-hmm. What? How tough were they? If you made a mistake in a performance, oh my god, they 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 could be very brutal. Yeah, I mean, you would be afraid. I made some terrible mistakes on the stage. I made a knife fool on myself a couple of times. I got renegated to the back row to be like a, a prop, basically for three years. I made that big for of a mistake. three years. For three years, I was just shoved to the back because I made such a fool of myself. But I thought I was doing a great job. It would be the equivalent of I had a rehearsal. And all the other dancers knew what they were doing. But as you would maybe read a script, you go, blah, 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 da, 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 da. That's what they did, but through dancing. And I thought that's what I had to do on the stage. Basically mark it, not do it fully. Mm -hmm. But I'm with all the soloists, all the principals. And I go out there and look like I'm doing it half by half half because I was. I think that was their fault now, <gasps> not yours. I don't know what to say. That was it's harsh. It'll follow me to the grave. That was harsh. The and, burn. And, and that, that one mistake yes, left you yes, in the back row yes, for three back years. back row for three years, that yes. must have been devastating. Um, well, actually, no, I never made that mistake again. And, not, and subsequently, with working with people now, I don't make that mistake now. Mm. You know, I don't go, that's a turn. I show them what a turn is. I don't go, that's a jump where you pretend to jump. I show them what the jump is. So keeps me fit. But I understand what it's like not to understand. So what's the t- Dancer Monica Lockman with Claire. This week, the Doc on One. Fear and Mistrust from Fergal Gallagher and Nicolene Greer. Conspiracies and the rise of the far right. Phil was from Belfast. He described himself as a former conspiracy theorist, but he got into the whole thing after 9-11 and the financial crash. He took the red pill. Around about that time, there were two main YouTube documentaries that came out. They're kind of considered the very first conspiracy blockbusters. Structure is collapsing. This was the result of something that was planned. The conspiracies that Phil got into suggested that the world order was being controlled by a small but powerful and sinister group. It's not accidental that the first tower just happened to collapse. This idea that the elite have orchestrated 9-11 says, 9-11 is a hoax. Several of these 19 men are still alive. Giving them a reason to invade Iraq and Afghanistan and a reason to also put in these very draconian measures where you had the surveillance states happening. All this new information suddenly helped Phil make sense of the world. The only thing I can really compare it to is almost like a religious epiphany because all of a sudden the the penny drops and you, you see the world in a different light for the first time. And you, you, you just sort of accept it almost as a matter of faith. It is just like you've taken the red pill. Red pilling, it comes from the film The Matrix. 
You take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And the red pill signifies an awakening that someone has to a different kind of version of reality. All I'm offering is the truth. I think I was watching the documentary for about the seventh time, and I let out this little chuckle. I remember having this sense of intellectual arrogance because I would go out into town and everyone was just talking about really superficial things. I almost became sort of a hermit in a way. You know, whenever I finished work, you would just sit and watch documentary after documentary. I just felt that I had this esoteric knowledge that no one else knew about. And, and whenever you tried to bring it up in conversation, everyone was very snappy and dismissive. And so I, I just felt that they're brainwashed, essentially. The thing about conspiracy theories is they make you feel that you are part of a clique that has this insider underdog knowledge. And that can be very alluring to a lot of people, particularly if they feel powerless. From the Doc on One, well worth checking out. With Ray, economist David McWilliams. And you and I are 50s yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're, how did, how did you describe us now? We are, I think we're... White male and stale, is that oh, it? Oh, no, pale male and stale. Pale male, pale and, stale. male and stale. Pale male and stale. We are, two of the, we are the two of the palest, malest <laughs> and stalest. Ooh, but nevertheless, David McWilliams is the first Irish person to do a TED Talk. The big ones, that is. Not the TEDx. Oh, no, that's small fry. It's titled The Power of Unconventional Thinking. Because the artist and the poet and the writer gives themselves the permission to think unconventionally at a tipping point. And as a result of that, they see the world a bit more clearly because they entertain different options that may or may not happen. Whereas my tribe do not give ourselves the permission to think unconventionally. And then you think, OK, well, if that is the case, or even if that is slightly the case, do we, let's say in Ireland, do we value the unconventional thinker? Mm. And maybe the best way to answer that question is to go back to school. And see, do we reward children who think unconventionally in school? Well, no. Precisely. So if you go back to school, like, again, people listening to, to the show, like, imagine, I've always said, imagine yourself as your 13-year-old self. You're the 13-year-old Ray Darcy, right? Mm. You can probably remember the classroom you're in. Uh-huh. You can probably remember the lads sitting around you. Yeah, you, you, just, you described me in your TED Talk, but I'm... I'm <laughs> so, so this I'm is, the baddie of the piece, You're the fellow looking out the window, right? No, I'm not. I'm the other guy. You're the other guy, right? But I mean, my point is... You're the guy looking out the window. You, you see, so you think... That, so think about the type... And as we get older, well, the one thing we know as we get older is that, and you, you certainly from your job note, you interview so many people, is that there are thousands of different types of intelligence, right? And they become apparent as we get older. But in school, we only reward one type of intelligence. And he warned against the dangers of groupthink. What is more crucial now is to just highlight the fact that at these junctures, certain people who are given the responsibility to make these right decisions, make the wrong decisions. Mm. And I think then it's important to say, well, who else in society could there be that we could actually look to? And this is why, for example, things like citizens' assemblies are really quite interesting. Because a citizen assembly, if you ask, like, what's a practical way of looking at it? A citizens' assembly takes 100 punters, different social backgrounds, different education. And interestingly, what we've seen in Ireland is they come up with an answer that actually approximates to where the society wants to go. Very interesting. And you talked about the rise of podcasts and how younger people are consuming their media, all of which brought the Darcy here. 
So what advice then, not that they're looking for advice, but what advice would you give to a traditional media organisation, say like RTE? Um, you've obviously thought about this and you've had chats with well, your friends about it. No, not, no. No, not really, not really. You'd you don't be amazed. care. People aren't that worried about RTE. No, no. Very, no, I would, I would. What? Not thinking about the Montrose mothership? How very dare you, sir. We will leave you there. And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. We will finish with the Darcy from their Sharon Shannon special yesterday. Talk to you next week. If anyone wants to dance, they can dance. Dum 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 d